Chapter Fifteen, Part One of the Sea: Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea: Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One, by Frederick Wimper. Chapter Fifteen, The History of Ships and Shipping Interests, Part One. The first attempts to float, hollowed logs and rafts, the ark and its dimensions, skin floats and basket boats, maritime commerce of antiquity, Phoenician enterprise. Did they round the Cape? The ships of Tyre, Carthage. Hanno's voyage to the west coast of Africa, Egyptian galleys, the great ships of the Ptolemies, heroes floating palace, the Romans, their repugnance to seafaring pursuits, sea battles with the Carthaginians, Cicero's opinions on commerce, Constantinople and its commerce, Venice, Britain, the first invasion under Julius Caesar, Benefits accruing, the Danish pirates, the London of the period, the father of the British navy, Alfred and his victories, Canute's fleet, the Norman invasion, the Crusades, Richard Coeur de Lyon's fleet, the Cinque Ports and their privileges, foundation of a maritime code, letters of mark, opening of the coal trade. Chaucer's description of the sailors of his time, a glorious period, the victories at Harfleur, Henry V's fleet of 1,500 vessels, the Channel Marauders, the Kingmaker Pirate, Sir Andrew Wood's victory, action with Scotch pirates, the Great Michael and the Great Harry, Queen Elizabeth's astuteness, the nation never so well provided, the most fortunate and invincible armada, its size and strength, Elizabeth's appeal to the country, a noble response, Effingham's appointment, the armada's first disaster, refitted and resails from Karuna, chased in the rear, a series of contratempts, English volunteer ships in numbers, the fire ships at Calais, the final action, flight of the Armada, fate of shipwrecked Spanish in Ireland, total loss to Spain, rejoicings and thanksgivings in England. It will not now be out of place to take a rapid survey of the progress of naval architecture, from log and coracle to wooden walls and ironclads, noting rapidly the progressive steps which led to the present epoch. It is only from the scriptures, and from fragmentary allusions in the writings of profane historians and poets, that we can derive any knowledge of the vessels employed by the ancients. Doubtless our first parents noticed branches of trees or fragments of wood floating upon the surface of that river which went out of Eden to water the garden, and from this to the use of logs, 
singly or combined in rafts or hollowed into canoes would be an easy transition the first boat was probably a mere toy model and likely enough great was the surprise when it was discovered that its sides though thin would support a considerable weight in the water the first specimen of naval architecture of which we have any description is unquestionably the ark built by noah if the cubit be taken as eighteen inches she was four hundred and fifty feet long seventy-five in breadth and forty-five in depth whilst her tonnage according to the present system of ad measurement would be about fifteen thousand tons it is more than probable that this huge vessel was after all little more than a raft or barge with a stupendous house reared over it for it was constructed merely for the purpose of floating and needed no means of propulsion she may have been comparatively speaking slightly built in her lofty upper works her carrying capacity being thereby largely increased soon after the flood if not indeed before it other means of flotation must have suggested themselves such as the inflated skins of animals these may be seen on the ancient monuments of assyria discovered by Layard, where there are many representations of people crossing rivers by this means next came wickerwork baskets of rushes or reeds smeared with mud or pitch similar to the ark in which moses was found mr Layard found such boats in use on the tigris they were constructed of twisted reeds made watertight by bitumen and were often large enough for four or five persons pliny says in his time even now in british waters vessels of vine twigs sewn round with leather are used the words in italics might be used were pliny writing today basket-work coracles covered with leather or prepared flannel are still found in a few parts of wales where they are used for fording streams or for fishing wooden canoes or boats whether hollowed from one log or constructed of many parts came next the paintings and sculptures of upper and lower egypt show regularly formed boats made of sawn planks of timber carrying a number of rowers and having sails the egyptians were averse to seafaring pursuits having extensive overland commerce with their neighbors the phoenicians were past all cavil the most distinguished navigators of the ancient world their capital tyre being for centuries the center of commerce the mart of nations strange to say this country whose inhabitants were the rulers of the sea in those times was a mere strip of land whose average breadth never exceeded twelve miles while its length was only two hundred and twenty-five miles from aridus in the north to yopa in the south forced by the unproductiveness of this territory and blessed with one or two excellent harbors and an abundant supply of wood from the mountains of lebanon the phoenicians soon possessed a numerous fleet which not only monopolized the trade of the mediterranean but navigated solomon's fleets to the persian gulf and indian ocean establishing colonies wherever they went 
Herodotus states that a Phoenician fleet, which was fitted out by Necho, king of Egypt, even circumnavigated Africa, and gives details which seems to place it within the category of the very greatest voyages. Starting from the Red Sea, they are stated to have passed Ophir, generally supposed to mean part of the east coast of Africa, to have rounded the continent, and entering the Mediterranean by the Pillars of Hercules, our old friends the rocks of Gibraltar and Kuwaita, to have reached Egypt in the third year of their voyage. Solomon, too, dispatched a fleet of ships from the Red Sea to fetch gold from Ophir. Diodorus gives at great length an account of the fleet said to be built by this people for the great queen Semiramis, with which she invaded India. Semiramis was long believed by many to be a mythical personage, but Sir Henry Rawlins's interpretations of the Assyrian inscriptions have placed the existence of this queen beyond all doubt. In the Assyrian Hall of the British Museum are two statues of the god Nebu, each of which bears a cuneiform inscription saying that they were made for Queen Semiramis by a sculptor of Nineveh. The commerce of Phoenicia must have been at its height when Nebuchadnezzar made his attack on Tyre. Ezekiel gives a description of her power about the year B.C. 588, when ruin was hovering around her. Tyre, says the prophet, was a merchant of the people from many isles. He states that her shipboards were made of fir trees of Senir, her masts of cedars from Lebanon, her oars of the oaks of Bashan, and the benches of her galleys of ivory brought out of the isles of Shittim. To the Tyrians also was due the colonization of other countries, which, following the example of the mother country, soon rivaled her in wealth and enterprise. The principal of these was Carthage, which in its turn founded colonies of her own, one of the first of which was Cadiz. From that port Hanno made his celebrated voyage to the west coast of Africa, starting with sixty ships, or galleys, of fifty oars each. He is said to have founded six trading posts or colonies. About the same time, Hamilco went on a voyage of discovery to the northwestern shores of Europe, where, according to a poem of Festus Avienus, he formed settlements in Britain and Ireland, and found tin and lead, and people who used boats of skin and leather. Aristotle tells us that the Carthaginians were the first to increase the size of their galleys from three to four banks of oars. Under the dynasty of the Ptolemies, the maritime commerce of Egypt rapidly improved. The first of these kings caused the erection of the celebrated pharaohs, or lighthouse, at Alexandria, in the upper story of which were windows looking seaward, and inside which fires were lighted by night to guide mariners to the harbor. Upon its front was inscribed, King Ptolemy, to God, the Savior, for the benefits of sailors. His successor, Ptolemy Philadelphus, attempted to cut a canal a hundred cubits in width between Arsinoe on the Red Sea, not far from Suez, to the eastern branch of the Nile. Enormous vessels were constructed at this time and during the succeeding reigns. 
Ptolemy, the son of Lagos, is said to have owned five hundred galleys and two thousand smaller vessels. Lucian speaks of a vessel that he saw in Egypt that was one hundred and twenty cubits long. Another, constructed by Ptolemy Philopater, is described by Calazinus, an Alexandrian historian, as two hundred and eighty cubits, say four hundred and twenty feet, in length. She is said to have four rudders, two heads, and two sterns, and to have been manned by four thousand sailors, meaning principally oarsmen, and three thousand fighting men. Calazinus also describes another built during the dynasty of the Ptolemies, called the Thalamigus, or carrier of the bedchamber. This leviathan was three hundred feet in length, and fitted up with every conceivable kind of luxury and magnificence, with colonnades, marble staircases, and gardens, from all which it is easy to infer that she was not intended for seagoing purposes, but was probably an immense barge, forming a kind of summer palace, moored on the Nile. Plutarch, in speaking of her, says that she was a mere matter of curiosity, for she differed very little from an immovable building, and was calculated mainly for show, as she could not be put in motion without great difficulty and danger. But the most prodigious vessel on the records of the ancients was built by order of Hero, the second tyrant of Syracuse, under the superintendence of Archimedes, about 230 years before Christ, the description of which would fill a small volume. Athenius has left a description of this vast floating fabric. There was, he states, as much timber employed in her as would have served for the construction of fifty galleys. It had all the varieties of apartments and the conveniences necessary to a palace, such as banqueting rooms, baths, a library, a temple of Venus, gardens, fish-ponds, mills, and a spacious gymnasium. The inlaying of the floors of the middle apartment represented in various colors the stories of Homer's Iliad. There were everywhere the most beautiful paintings, and every embellishment and ornament that art could furnish were bestowed on the ceilings, windows, and every part. The inside of the temple was inlaid with cypress wood, the statues were of ivory, and the floor was studded with precious stones. This vessel had twenty benches of oars, and was encompassed by an iron rampart or battery. It had also eight towers with walls and bulwarks which were furnished with machines of war, one of which was capable of throwing a stone of three hundred pounds weight, or a dart of twelve cubits long, to the distance of half a mile. To launch her, Archimedes invented a screw of great power. She had four wooden and eight iron anchors. Her mainmast, composed of a single tree, was procured after much trouble from distant inland mountains. Hero, finding that he had no harbors in Sicily capable of containing her, and learning that there was famine in Egypt, sent her loaded with corn to Alexandria. She bore an inscription of which the following is part, Hero, the son of Heracles, the Dorian, who wields the scepter of Sicily, 
sends this vessel bearing in her the fruits of the earth do thou o neptune preserve in safety this ship over the blue waves among the grecian states corinth stood high in naval matters her people were expert shipbuilders and claimed the invention of the trireme or galley with three tiers of oars athens with its three ports also carried on for a long period a large trade with egypt palestine and the countries bordering the black sea the romans had little inclination at first for seamanship but were forced into it by their rivals of carthage it was as late as b c two sixty one before they determined to build a war fleet and had not a carthaginian galley grounded on the coast of italy been seized by them they would not have understood the proper construction of one previously they had nothing much above large boats rudely built of planks the noble romans affected to despise commerce at this period and trusted to the greek and other traders to supply their wants quintus claudius introduced a law which passed that no senator or father of one should own a vessel of a greater capacity than just sufficient to carry the produce of their own lands to market here the enlightened cicero on the subject of commerce he observes that trade is mean if it has only a small profit for its object but it is otherwise if it has large dealings bringing many sorts of merchandise from foreign parts and distributing them to the public without deceit and if after a reasonable profit such merchants are contented with the riches they have acquired and purchasing land with them retire into the country and apply themselves to agriculture i cannot perceive wherein is the dishonor of that function mariners were not esteemed by the romans until after the great battle of actium which threw the monopoly of the lucrative indian trade into their hands claudius a d forty one deepened the tiber and built the port of ostia and about fifty years later trajan constructed the port of civita vecchia and ancana where commerce flourished the roman fleets were often a source of trouble to them Curiousius, who was really a dutch soldier of fortune about the year 280 seized upon the fleet he commanded and crossed from gesuriacum below to britain where he proclaimed himself emperor he held the reins of government for seven years and was at length murdered by his lieutenant he was really the first to create a british manned fleet in the reign of diocletian the Veneti, on the coast of gaul threw off the roman yoke and claimed tribute from all who appeared in the seas the same emperor founded constantinople erected later under constantine into the seat of government this city seemed to be destined by nature as a great commercial centre caravans placed it in direct communication with the east and it was really the entrepot of the world till its capture by the venetians in twelve o four that independent republic had been then in a flourishing condition for over two hundred years and for more than as many after its people were the greatest traders of the world it was at venice in twelve o two that some of the leading pilgrims assembled to negotiate for a fleet 
to be used in the fourth crusade the crusaders agreed to pay the venetians before sailing eighty-four thousand marks of silver and to share with them all the booty taken by land or sea the republic undertook to supply flat-bottomed vessels enough to convey four thousand five hundred knights and twenty thousand soldiers provisions for nine months and a fleet of galleys surrounded by the silver streak our hardy forefathers often crossed to ireland and france prior to the first invasion of britain by julius caesar b c fifty five when he sailed from boulogne with eighty vessels and eight thousand men and with eighteen transports to carry eight hundred horses for the cavalry in the second invasion he employed a fleet of six hundred boats and twenty-five war galleys having with him five legions of infantry and two thousand cavalry a formidable army for the poor islanders to contend against but their intercourse with the romans speedily brought about commercial relations of importance the pearl fisheries were then most profitable while the native oyster was greatly esteemed by the roman epicures of whom juvenal speaks in his fourth satire he says they could at one bite the oysters taste decide and say if at circean rocks or in the lucrian lake or on the coast of richborough in britain they were bred british oysters were exported to rome as american oysters are nowadays to england marshall also mentions another trade in one of his epigrams that of basket-making works of barbaric art a basket i from painted britain came but the roman city now calls the painted britain's art their own the smaller description of boats other than galleys employed by the romans for transporting their troops and supplies were the kiwile called by the saxons keel or kyle which name has come down to us in the form of keel and is still applied to a description of barge used in the north of england thus wheel may the keel row says the song and on the coley tyne a small barge carrying twenty-one tons four hundredweight is said to carry a keel of coals the romans must also have possessed large transport vehicles for within seventy or eighty years after they had gained a secure footing in this country they received a reinforcement of five thousand men in seventeen ships or about three hundred men besides stores to each vessel bede places the final departure of the romans from britain in a d four o nine or just before the siege of rome by attila our ancestors were now rather worse off than before for they were left a prey to the vikings those bold hardy unscrupulous scandinavian seamen of the north who began to make piratical visits for the sake of plunder to the coasts of scotland and england they found their way to the mediterranean and were known and feared in every port from iceland to constantinople their galleys were propelled mainly by means of oars but they had also small square sails to get help from a stern wind and as they often sailed straight across the stormy northern seas it is probable that they had made considerable progress in the rigging and handling of their ships 
a plank-built boat, was discovered a few years since in Denmark, which the antiquaries assign to the fifth century. It is a rowboat measuring seventy-seven feet from the stem to the stern, and proportionately broad in the middle. The construction shows that there was an abundance of material and skilled labor. It is alike at bow and stern, and the thirty rowlocks are reversible, so as to permit the boat to be navigated with either end forward. The vessel is built of heavy planks, overlapping each other from the gunwale to the keel, and cut thick at the point of juncture, so that they may be mortised into the cross-beams and gunwale instead of being merely nailed. Very similar boats, light, swift, and strong, are still used in the Shetlands and Norway. Little is known of the state of England from the departure of the Romans to the 8th century. The doubtful and traditional landing of Hengist and Horsa with 1,500 men in three long ships is hardly worth discussing here. The venerable Bede, who wrote about A.D. 750, speaks of London as the mart of many nations resorting to it by sea and land, and he continues that King Ethelbert built the church of St. Paul in the city of London where he and his successors should have their episcopal see, but the history of this period generally is in a hopeless fog. Still we know that London was now a thriving port. Caesar, in his commentaries, distinctly states that his reason for attempting the conquest of England was on account of the vast supplies which his Gaulish enemies received from us in the way of trade. The exports were principally cattle, hides, corn, dogs, and slaves, the latter an important item. Strabo observes that our internal parts at that time were on a level with the African slave coasts. Britons never shall be slaves, could not therefore have been said in those days. London, long prior to the invasion of England by the Romans, was an existing city, and vessels paid dues at Billingsgate long before the establishment of any custom-house. Pennant tells us, in his famous work on London, as early as 979, all the reign of Ethelred, a small vessel was to pay ad Billingsgate one half penny as a toll, a greater bearing sails one penny, a keel or hulk, keel vel hulkus, four pence, a ship laden with wood, one piece per toll, and a boat with fish, one half penny, or a lodger, one penny. We had even now trade with France for its wines, for mention is made of ships from Rouen, who came here and landed them, and freed them from toll, that is, paid their duties. What they amounted to I cannot learn. End of chapter 15, part 1